The scripture reading today is Ruth chapter 1. During the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man with his wife and his two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. The name of that man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the territory of Moab and settled there. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Then only she was left, along with her two sons. They took for themselves wives, Moabite women. The name of the first was Orpah, and the name of the second was Ruth. And they lived there for about ten years. But both of the sons, Malon and Kilian, also died. Only the woman was left, without her two children and without her husband. Then she arose, along with her daughters-in-law, to return from the field of Moab, because while in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people by providing food for them. She left the place where she had been, and her two daughters-in-law went with her. They went along the road to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, turn back, each of you, to the household of your mother. May the Lord deal faithfully with you, just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide for you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they replied to her, No, instead we will return with you to your people. Naomi replied, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there be again sons in my womb that they would be husbands for you? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old for a husband. If I were to say that I have hope, even if I have a husband tonight, and even more, if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew? Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters, this is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stayed with her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and more so, if even death separates me from you. When Naomi saw Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So both of them went along until they arrived at Bethlehem. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was excited on account of them. And the women of the town asked, Can this be Naomi? She replied to them, Don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty. Thus, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her from the territory of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
Good morning again. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the gift to come together and uh, try to catch a glimpse of you in the midst of the crush of our daily lives. We ask that um, you would clear away those things that, um, that clutter our minds and our hearts and keep us from catching um, a little bit of what it is that you want to do within us and through us, that we might be present, that you might be moving, and that we might leave this space encouraged, challenged, uh, reminded of your love, and called out to share it with greater fullness. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. A few years into ministry, I felt a deep and urgent need to change my wedding sermons. In the space of a year, I had had my first child, my partner had left a ministry that was wildly under-resourced and incredibly stressful. I was likely struggling with postpartum depression, but being a three uh, was quite functional, and was in the second year of planting a church. Life and marriage in particular um, was, in, uh, was not the happily ever after I had, didn't really believe in in the first place. And so as I considered what kind of message I could honestly share with folks uh, as a wedding officiant, my gaze turned away from the married couple to all the people in the room who were married and were likely on the same struggle bus as me, trying to remember why they thought the whole enterprise was worth it in the first place. The couple getting married, I knew, were wrapped up in the flurry of wedding details, filled with the joy and anxiety and anticipation for the day and for the unknown years ahead. They too would eventually need a message to help them through the inevitable rough patches of life together. Marriage, I say, is often a lonely enterprise. Part of it is because we hope and expect so deep and so deeply desire for someone to know us and to love our whole selves but more often than not, the person has the audacity to want the same thing. And so as it turns out, it takes a lot of work to pay deep attention to another person. We can do it off and on, but it's really difficult to sustain with any regularity. And it's not because we intend for this to happen, but well, you know, life gets busy and our internal resources dry up. Add a kid or three or infertility, financial hardship, extended family obligations, or addictions to it all, and life together just gets, well, challenging. It's not uncommon to lose the thread when it comes to marriage promises, and that's because it's complicated and beautiful and challenging and fragile and incredibly human. On top of that, it has to last a really long time, I mean, at least in the best sense of it, right? So what you thought you were, might have been signing up for at the beginning rarely looks the same all the way through. Now, in our passage for today, we see this bear out in the marriages and lives of three women. Naomi and her husband Elimelech struggle to build a life that will sustain them and their two children in Moab, or in Bethlehem. So they leave for a country called Moab. And if you're familiar with Bible history at all, which I know you all are, you would know that the name Moab carries very, very negative moral and emotional connotations for folks like Naomi and Elimelech. When the Israelites encountered the Moabites throughout scripture, the circumstances were either hostile or shameful. So who knows what it took for them to make this decision to leave their hometown, the people that knew them, the tradition that they were familiar with, to go into a land that was only considered hostile and shameful. Maybe they drink your blood, right? Uh, as uh, uh, Larry was mentioning. So, you know, but they did, right? They head to Moab and after some time, Elimelech dies. 
Naomi is a single mother for 10 years. It's tough, but the boys are her future in an emotional and a financial sense. In the ancient Near East, a widowed woman has no options other than to rely on her nearest male relative for sustenance. So the boys grow up, they get married to a couple of Moabite women, things start to look up. But then both sons die. And now we've got three childless widows. If there is anything less useful than a widowed woman, it's a childless one. Naomi has lost everything that grounded her. And as she tussles with Orpah and Ruth through the next steps, her argument is convincing. She has no future for them. Orpah sees the logic and in spite of her affection for Naomi, moves on to build a life. But Ruth won't let go. The passage says that Ruth clings to Naomi as she makes a promise of devotion that binds their future together. And if you weren't looking closely at the Hebrew in the passage, you might not notice that the word that gets translated as cling is actually the same word that's used in Genesis to describe the relationship of marriage. And so in this, the queer theologian Mona West puts it this way, Ruth is our queer ancestress. And in case this is a confusing or concerning phrase, let me be clear that this is not so much about the sexuality of Ruth and Naomi than it is about subverting the norms that have been dictated by patriarchal social structures. And by this, I mean that instead of disappearing from the story, Ruth courageously provides us with an example of self-determination, naming and affirming her relationship with Naomi in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. She refuses to accept a marginalized status based on definitions of marriage, family, and procreation. In other words, Ruth helps us to imagine new ways for being family in spite of rigid and hostile social structures, something that our queer siblings are very good at showing and figuring out um, for themselves. And so I marvel at Ruth's passion for commitment in the midst of all of this. Ruth is binding herself to a people and a future that isn't just uncertain, but frankly looks dismal for her. Why would someone make a promise like this? Now we're in the second week of a sermon series about the art of belonging. Last week we talked about the ways in which gratitude serves as a foundation for community building, how when we tap into our gratitude for God's work around us and within us, it helps us to be more generous and charitable in our relationships. It digs a deep well to draw from as we open ourselves to one another. Today, we're talking about promises and how they help to secure a sense of our connection and our belonging and community. Even though Ruth didn't come from the same religious tradition as Naomi, somehow she learned something about promises from it. For Naomi's family and people, there is a deep understanding about the nature of a promise, that God's faithfulness to a promise made with Abraham generations before had shaped their collective sense of purpose and identity. If you leave everything and follow me, God promised, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. This promise wasn't just a contractual agreement, although there is some of that in there. It proved to be cloaked and marked with something much more over the years. And that something more has a name, chesed. I talked about chesed several weeks ago. It is what God's people came to understand about the deepest nature of God's character, one of unearned grace and mercy, of loving kindness and loyalty that extends far beyond what the law required, beyond anything the recipient expects or deserves 
to receive. So when Naomi told Orpah and Ruth to return to their families, she was releasing them from what bound them together legally. You're no longer obligated to me. But when Ruth refuses to leave and makes this promise, she enacts a different kind of law. A law bound not by economic transaction, which was what most of marriage was about, but about something more, loving kindness, loyalty, hesed. As Christians, we strive toward that same kind of commitment to one another, and like Ruth, we try to capture that through specific promises that we make. In membership, parents, youth, and adults make promises to follow in the way of Jesus, to grow in faith and understanding, and to do this in community with others. In baptism, we make those promises, but we also remember and claim God's promise on our own lives to love us and never leave us. The congregation in both instances make promises back. We will help you in this journey. In just a couple of weeks, we'll install elders of our community, and they will answer questions like, will you pray for God's people and lead them by your own example in faithful service and holy living? When I was installed as your pastor just one year and one week ago, I made promises, reaffirmations of my ordination vows. Will you pray for and seek to serve the people with energy, intelligence, and imagination and love? And also, I made promises to this community here that I would be governed by the church's polity and abide by its discipline, that I would care for you and be your pastor. You also, I don't know if you remember this, right, but you also made promises to me to receive me as your pastor, to honor my authority, and to welcome my pastoral care. And all of these promises in this kind of micro-community here, right, are held in an even broader promise, the ones that were made by believers who came before us, who stewarded the church's mission through war and peace, disease and faith, wealth and poverty. And those promises, in turn, are wrapped in the timeless promise of God's covenant to love us and never let us go. In other words, Christian community is like the turducken of promises. The promises of individuals tucked into the promises of community, tucked, wrapped up in God's transcendent promises of faithfulness. What a feast. Promises are essential, not only because they are a moment for us to articulate what we can give and receive from one another, which is kind of like the practical, you know, commitments. That's the most obvious function. They also help to shape our imagination about our future. Right? The moment Naomi accepted Ruth's promise of commitment was the moment she began to have an idea of what her future might look like, that she would not live out her days alone, that there would be someone by her side. And so when we make promises to one another, we're also committing ourselves to building something together that we don't always know is going to work out, right? But we are promising to try and to stick it out together. And so for this reason, promises can be incredibly powerful, which is why when they are broken, it can feel particularly devastating. In church, we have all kinds of expectations. Some of them are explicit, like the ones I talked about earlier, um, uh, the baptismal vows, membership vows, that kind of thing. But others are implicit, right? That we are reliable in any, that, uh, that we are reliable in any number of ways that we don't actually say, but we sort of expect. Right? For example, we require every person who works with a minor to submit to a background check. And we offer gluten-free elements in communion. 
These are just a couple of ways that we try to communicate our trustworthiness. We didn't make a vow for that, right? But it's a way that we want to honor our life together as we prioritize the safety of our children and the hospitality and accessibility of God's table. And so when promises are broken in the context of church, it is particularly painful. There's a reason why the phrase church hurt exists. It can feel kind of like a sucker punch to the soul. Now last week, um, at the end of worship, I asked Jason to lead a song that had been running through my mind all week as I prepared a message on gratitude. The, the chorus was running through my mind. Thank you, God, for all you've done for me. And so I thought that it would be an uplifting way to end our service. Now I was aware that aspects of the lyrics could be interpreted in ways that seemed insensitive or maybe even self-centered if you looked at them through a particular lens, if you read them in a certain way. Tragedies are commonplace, all kinds of diseases, people are slipping away. Economy's down, people can't get enough pay. As for me, all I can say is thank you, God, for all you've done for me. Now from my vantage point, I know these to be true, actual possibilities in any one of our lives that some of us are right up against, if not completely already in some of these tragedies. None of us are safe from the unpredictability of life, and many of us have had to negotiate them. Yes, in fact, it could have been me. And I am grateful for all that God has done for me. And yet, the song could be understood as a kind of relief that the bullet I dodged hit this one over here, right? Or perhaps equally harmful that we should ignore the pain in our lives and paper it over with a saccharine, thank you, God, when we don't feel anything close to grateful. These are two very legitimate critiques. So for these folks and perhaps others, there was a sense that maybe in a way, right, it's not, this isn't high stakes, right, but that I had broken a promise of sorts, a promise that we would be theologically thoughtful and sensitive to the pain and pain points of our community. In one sense, I thought I was, but as it turns out, it wasn't enough. And so this brings me to the other thing about promises. Sometimes we fail them. The truth is that none of us will be able to keep all of our promises all the time. Sometimes it's because we are short-sighted, sometimes because we are ignorant, perhaps, of other experiences, uh, because we have competing commitments, competing promises that we've made even, right? Um, and sometimes it's just because we didn't actually take that commitment seriously to begin with. And so the only way I know how to, um, well, we have to think about then, right, how to repair this relational damage. And the only way I know how to do it is to acknowledge my part and ask for forgiveness. And so this is the moment where I say I'm sorry. Um, and I hope that you all trust that my intentions were good, even if maybe the impact um, was harmful for some folks. And at the end of the day, regardless of my intentions, I am accountable to impact. We all are. Sometimes it can be very difficult to muster up the courage to admit the ways in which we have failed each other, which is why it is important to cultivate trust. When we trust each other, we can believe that our apologies are sincere, right? That, that the apologies we receive from others are sincere. And as the one who might have to apologize, we can trust that they will be received in a spirit of repair. If we've been wounded, um, we can try to trust again, right? This trust is built over time and with practice, but a significant aspect of it comes from a unique technology that we all have access to as Christians. 
the redemptive and renewing grace of Jesus Christ, which gives us the capacity to try again. Promise keeping is work, not only to repair things when we know we've missed the mark, but to speak the truth as well when someone has not upheld their part of the promise. Truth-telling, something that we'll explore next week, is essential to making and keeping promises. Because I wouldn't know that maybe my choice could be, have been harmful to someone if no one spoke up. But it takes trust that I would receive that, right? So I'm thankful that there is enough trust that folks would say something to me. I receive it in good faith as sincere. And I hope that um, the folks who need to hear that um, from me receive my apology as sincere. So on one hand, it could be easy to judge Orpha um, as a lesser person than Ruth because she ultimately decided to leave Naomi and build a new life, right? Like, what kind of person is Orpha anyway, right? But isn't that so much better than if she had stayed and sort of reluctantly went along with them, right? Oh, man, you know, Ruth just made this promise, like, I can't be, you know, I can't be the doofus here who walks away. Um, but it was actually a kinder thing for everyone that Orpha would just name what she needed and moved toward it rather than kind of allow herself to go along with a promise that she didn't want to keep, right? And so this brings me to the last thing I'm going to say about promises, which is don't make one that you don't plan to keep. It's hard enough to keep it when you mean it. And so let's at least set ourselves and each other up for success. There are lots of reasons why I could speculate why Ruth felt so committed to Naomi. Maybe her family of origin was worse, or maybe no longer it, was, it was no longer an option for her. Maybe she felt a sense of belonging or even affinity with the family's values. We'll never know that side of the story. What we can know is that Ruth demonstrates a level of hesed that Naomi had only ever heard about in the stories of God that she had given up, but that God had not given up on her. Through Ruth, a Moabite of all people, God moved to not only help Naomi carve out a future for herself, but if you follow the lineage, a future for all of Israel. Through Ruth, a foreign, childless, widowed woman who embodied God's faithfulness better than God's own people, the greatest king the people of Israel had ever known would emerge. And through the dynasty of David, down, 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 a child born of another faithful woman who embodied a promise that makes it possible for all of us to know and access that same faithful God from so long ago. And so in the story of these two women, Ruth and Naomi, and their queer family that they created, we discover our future and our hope that no matter where we may find ourselves in the journey of life and faith, no matter the depths of our despair or our hopelessness, we have here at least a community that journeys together and a God who promises to never fail us and never um, leave us or forsake us. We all are in different places of our experience of promises. Maybe some of us are in the middle of a promise that is being broken. And there is pain in that. But trust and know that for all of the human promises that fail us, God's promise never fails. God's promise never fails. And so let us try and try again 
as we try to keep that promise, as we trust in God's promise, the great turducken of promises that we live in, knowing that God can do something more with those than we could ever do on our own. Now, during communion, um, you'll have an opportunity, if you are baptized, to remember your baptism. And baptism is that moment when we receive the claim of God on our lives, that God will be faithful. And so I invite you, if that is something that um, would help to ground you in whatever places that you find yourself in your own journey, um, to be reminded of God's faithful promise in your life, um, to receive that um, with gladness and with gratitude. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you keep your promises. We thank you that you trust us enough to try to keep our promises to one another. And we thank you that we have access to your grace, which can bind us together through any number of infractions that we make to one another. Help us to be kind to ourselves and to each other as we try together. And help us to have the courage to hold each other accountable when we fail, trusting and knowing that this is part of what it means to be your people, a people of promise, today and through the ages. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.